going to pray for us and then we're going to read Nehemiah chapter four. Let's pray. Father, we come before you now asking your blessings upon your word. Your word is light for our path. It is a lamp unto our feet. It is powerful enough to make us wise unto salvation. It is alive. It is living. That there is a, a potency in it that is nowhere else under the sun. That this is your word breathed out by your spirit. Using the personalities of men to write and to record. That we might have this word preserved for us even now. And so we bless you. And we ask for the same spirit that resides in the hearts of your people to be quickened to the work of that same spirit who wrote this, that you might do the work of communicating to our souls, that we might be built up and that we might see you in your glory and that we might be changed having met you. I pray that for Jesus' sake. Amen. We're in Nehemiah 4. We're going to read all of it. This is the word of the Lord. And now when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged. And he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice again? Will they finish it up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and the burned ones at that? And then Tobiah, the Ammonite, who was beside him, he said, yes, what they are building, if a fox goes up on it, the fox will break down their stone wall. Hear, O oh, our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and do not let their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. And so we built the wall and all the wall was joined together to half its height for the people had a mind to work. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Astrodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and to fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. And in Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. And at that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all the directions and said to us 10 times, you must return to us. And so in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in the open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. And when our enemies heard that it was known to us that God had frustrated their plan, 
we all returned to the wall, each of us to his work. And from that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and half held the spears, the shields, the bows, and the coats of mail. And the leader stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had a sword strapped at his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the noble and to the officials and to the rest of the people, this work is great and widely spread and we are separated on the wall far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet rally to us there and our God will fight for us. And so we labored at the work and half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at that time, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem that they may guard us for by night and may labor by day. So neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his right hand. Amen. Man, that's a powerful piece of scripture. Spears and swords and shields and bows and arrows and all of that. So uh, when I was a, a kid, I loved Mike Tyson. And I still remember the very first time I saw Mike Tyson fight and I looked at his age and I looked at how the age of the other guy that he was fighting. And the, in my mind, I would not have imagined that this, I mean, he was almost a teenager almost, right? That this, this, this guy would be able to knock this guy out and he won it. Like he knocked the guy out and I forgot his name, but he won. He was a champ. Uh, he, he became the champion, the champion. And I love Mike Tyson so much that I convinced my parents to get us some boxing gloves as a kid. And so they bought us a couple sets of boxing gloves. And in my neighborhood, it was a lot of boys. I mean, it was just, a, and we just, we played outside all day. And so, and so my dad got us some gloves and that was the way that we solved everything. If you, <laughs> if you foul somebody too hard, let's go put the gloves on. And you all went in the backyard and you, you put the boxing gloves on and we fought. Or if you said a, a bad your mama joke, you just put the gloves on <laughs> and you went and fought. Or if you had a dispute, I mean, for, we settled our fights with boxing gloves, like real gloves. Now, that worked every bit of two to three weeks, right? <laughs> I mean, I tore my shoulder up, like swinging and missing. I knocked one of my cousins out, like he was knocked out. Um, we didn't have any headgear. Head and so after a while, just beating each other up for two or three weeks, we just did, we didn't, want, we didn't want the gloves anymore. Like, <laughs> Well, something else changed. Mike Tyson's Punch-Out came out on a Nintendo. I heard some of y'all say, yeah, I heard, I heard a few people. And so why, why fight with real boxing gloves when you can hit the A and B button and move left or right on a video game? And so that's what we did. Everything kind of went inside for a season. And it was, you know, when you learn, and see, this was before like Google and before the internet. And so like, we didn't have cheat codes. Like we were real gamers. Like, y'all are like fake gamers today because you can, you can go get a magazine and get cheat codes. You can go online and watch somebody beat it. Not in my day. Like, you just had to figure it out. And so uh, Mike Tyson, the premise of the whole game was that you kind of work your way through lower weights and you kind of work and work and work and then you finally get to fight Mike Tyson at the end of the game. 
Well, here's the thing. Like, you really had to beat guys like Glass Joe and Piston Honda and Ball Bull. And, I mean, there was just a bunch of characters that you had to fight. But when we first got the game, I mean, we were getting clobbered by, like, the first guy. I mean, the first guy, his name was Glass Joe. And he would do this little move, right, where he would come forward and he would kind of bag up four spaces. He would go left and he would go right. And then he would come down and just kind of hit you. And so we were, we were all, we just did not know uh, how to beat this guy. And so we would try to swing and he would knock us out and just knock us out hours upon hours. And then my cousin said, hey, why don't you swing at him when he's coming at you? And it knocked him out right then. And we started to see a pattern a pattern for all the fighters on the Mike Tyson punch out that at 27 seconds, every fighter is going to do something. And Glass Joe, he's going to bag up and go left and right. Every, I mean, he's just going to do it. You watch the game, right? And every fighter in the game has this pattern. And once you discover the pattern, you could actually fight. But as long as you ignored the pattern that was there, that was embedded in the programming of the game, we were clueless. The pattern, the pattern unlocked this ability to actually fight and to play. Now, I say that because Nehemiah is showing us a pattern. And if you were with us three weeks ago, when we were in Nehemiah chapter two, I talked about the pattern of opposition. I said that, and I made the, I made the case to drive this home that it is not a coincidence that the moment Nehemiah sets his heart to go and rebuild, that opposition instantly, I mean instantly, as soon as he gets there, opposition arises. And I said there's this pattern where everything that we want to do for the Lord, it will be opposed in this life by the world, by the flesh, and by the devil. It will not be easy to do any good thing for the Lord. The pattern. And I talked about the other pattern where in the end, God wins. No matter what book you read, you open the Bible from the beginning and you see the fall. You open it to the end and you see Jesus enthroned, reigning, ruling and creation restored with the tree and and the new heavens and the new earth. There is a pattern inside the pattern that says God will always win. He will not lose. He will always win. And we make the case that he's already won on the cross of Christ. Now, I say that because there is another theme. It's going to feel really redundant, but you're going to see this again. There's good work going forward, and it's met with opposition again. And it sounds really, really redundant, but I'm telling you, it's in keeping with the pattern So why do we need Nehemiah 4? Because Sanballat isn't new. We heard of his name in Nehemiah 2. Tobiah isn't new. We heard of his name in Nehemiah 2. The Arabs aren't new. We heard of their names in Nehemiah 2. The opposition to the wall is not new. We heard that in Nehemiah 2. Well, why in the world do we need Nehemiah 4? Because Nehemiah takes us deeper into the pattern. He starts to show us more about how things work. And here's a case that I want to make to you this morning that, that in Nehemiah 3, there was a lot of individual names. And you, if you were here with us last week, the individual names, there was a ton of them. 
and these people were sort of working. But Nehemiah now is not thinking in terms of individuals. If you look at this text, he's thinking about the people at large. Yeah, you get some of their opposition's names, but by and large, he's thinking about the people as a whole. And so I want to sort of step our gaze back and think about us as a church. I want to think about us as collective units, that as we seek to endeavor to honor and follow, follow the Lord, uh, there's some things that we're sure to encounter. And so the first thing I want us to say that, and I think this is a pattern, that God's people will progress in the Lord's work. And it's a pattern that I'm going to look at you in all of your eyes and say, you will make headway in sanctification. That we will grow. Because God has given us his spirit to work. That we will do things. And it's not because we are special or we are powerful. It's more in line with the powerful work of God that is inside of us that will do. It will conform, right? Now, we're gonna, it's going to be at different paces. But here's the point. I think God's people will progress in the work of the Lord. Now, you see this in this text because uh, what do I mean by progress? I mean, for Nehemiah, like, I, I think it means that when he initially went to Jerusalem in chapter 2, that he, he spends a lot of his time surveying. He gets out at night, he gets on his, his animals and he kind of, you know, walks around, I mean, rides around the city and he sort of comes back and he encourages the people, let us build. And it says that the people were strengthened. You know, that's Nehemiah chapter two, that, that, that they're dreaming now. He's dreaming, he's seeing brokenness and he is saying, hey, we, we will rebuild. And he's encouraging the people, be strong, be mighty. We don't see that in Nehemiah 4. In Nehemiah 4, we actually see that they started working. And I think you have three scenes. I think you get three scenes to show their progress. And then I think I'm going to show you three scenes to show the opposition. First thing, let me show you the progress. You see it in verse 1. Sanballat heard that they were building the wall. This is not in theory anymore. This is not them needing motivation anymore. This is God's people actually doing what God would have them to do. They are obeying. So Sanballat is not upset because Nehemiah is thinking and promoting. He's upset now because they are actually building the wall. That's, that's the first scene. Look at the second scene in verse 6 of chapter 4. So we built the wall, and the wall was joined together half its height because the people had the mind to work. So right there, that's the second scene. He says, we built the wall. Matter of fact, we built the wall from the ground up to half of its height. The people had the mind to work. In other words, it's not full. It's not fully completed yet, but it's not where it used to be. They're making progress. They're, they're building this wall up because God's people had the heart to actually do the work. So what's happening here is sort of coming out with their hands, they're doing the work. Now look at scene three. Look at verse seven. And the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and the breaches were beginning to be closed. That's progress. Not only is it going up, what does Nehemiah say? That the, that, that the work of the Lord is going forward and that the breaches. So everywhere around the entire city, every weak spot that they had, they were building up. And they were closing in the weak spots. You see what Nehemiah is doing? He is saying three different ways that God's people who endeavored to do God's work, they are actually doing it. 
that their hands are actually bringing about something good, that they are using their minds and their sweat and their commitment and something out of nothing. Well, it's not out of nothing technically, but brokenness and chaos is being brought into order. And it's God's people by God's spirit working through them to do it. And that's important to hear, right? It's important to hear because I think it's really easy to be pessimistic that when you start to look at the world and you start to look at the adoption system and you start to look at foster care and you start to look at some of the great needs of the city and of the world, that there is a there's an inadequate way to approach that as a Christian, as if we can do absolutely nothing about it. As if let's just roll over, let's just prepare ourselves for heaven. To, I don't know what's going to happen to the earth, but my ticket is punched and I'm gone. And what you read when you read the Bible over and over again, it says that Jesus is making all things new and he's doing it through you and I. It's an invitation to do work, but we will make progress in that work. There's a story, I don't know if you saw it on Dateline, it was, uh, I think it was in December of 2016, but it's, it's called the New Columbia. If you know anything about Columbia, I mean, it was the murder capital of the world. I mean, one city had 6,800 6, murders in a year. And there was a 52-year-long war between some revolutionary forces, 220,000 people dead, Millions displaced. And looking at that problem, 52 years with these gorillas who sort of live in the jungles and kind of come in with armed guns and steal and loot and kill and try to take over the government and then retreating back. I mean, people really thought that there is no way we can do anything to stop that. Well, one guy had this brilliant plan. To, it was a marketing guy. He says, we'll start a series of campaigns. And the first campaign was to, it was during Operation Christmas, I think. I think that's the name of it. And they decided to fly in and to throw uh, Christmas lights across the jungle. And on Christmas Day, they would turn on all the lights. And when the gorillas, the, the, the guys who with the armed, armed weapons saw this, that some of them were mesmerized because they had not had that type of intentional contact with people from the outside. And so some of the men, they, they came out of the jungle, they laid their weapons down. That was the campaign number one. Campaign number two was they, they figured out that the rivers in the jungle were like the soup, that they're like the highways, the super highways. And so all of these men would live near jungles. They would live near rivers to get food, to get fish. I mean, all of that kind of stuff. And so what they did was they, they started this ad campaign where they got these waterproof clear balls, put a light in it, and they wrote handwritten letters and then dropped them in the river and just let them go down the river. And these men picked them up more men came out of the wilderness, I mean, out of the jungle. They did the third campaign. This time they went for the jugular, right? They went and interviewed mothers who have not seen their sons in 20 and 30 years. And they said, please come home. Before you were with them, you were my son, come home. And so they put baby pictures of these men up throughout the entire jungle. 
And men saw it and broke down and came out of hiding and turned the guns down. The last one was the most successful. Those men in the jungles love soccer. And so they got all of the famous soccer athletes to sign soccer balls. And they dropped soccer balls into the jungle and says, demilitarize, come home and play with us. And 18,000 of those men laid the weapons down and came out. They eventually came to the table and are negotiating peace. And you know what's happened in Colombia? 100% increase in international investment, 200% increase in tourism. Why? Because somebody intervened, a person using creative genius actually said, stepped up and said, this does not have to be this way. Now, I'm not saying they're Christian. I'm proving a point that what we do can impact the world. Our commitment to Christ, the talents, the gifts, the treasures, the energy, our intellect, all of this stuff that we've been given by God, it can make a difference. You can open your home and change the trajectory of a family. You can do these things. And I think that's the point that Nehemiah is making, that when God's people do God's work, they can progress in that and they can actually take broken things and make something beautiful out of it. But not everyone is excited about the news of this wall. And what we see is that as they progress, opposition progresses as well. Now, I want to make the case that there are three scenes that show that they're working and progressing. And there are another three scenes to show us the opposition that is increasing as they do their work, as they're about the Lord's business, that the dial is being turned up how they're being opposed. And you see it in verse, look at scene one. It's in verses one through three. So if you want to write that, verses one through three, I think that's scene one. Now, when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. He mocked them, and he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, what, this guy has an army with him now? And look at, look at what's coming from his mouth. What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Are they willing to sacrifice their own safety for this wall? Will they finish it in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and the burned ones at that? He's the ringleader leading in the scoffing and the mocking. And he obviously said it loud enough for Nehemiah to hear it. Otherwise, it would not be in the Bible. So we're not talking about gossip in the corner. We're talking about like, Ringleader, I got my army, I got my boys, and we're talking loud enough. Yeah, we're talking about y'all over there working on that wall. Look at what Tobiah says. Look at, look at what he says. What they are building, if a fox goes on it, he will break it down. I mean, think about the imagery. 
that they're working on this wall. He says, if a one little fox, we're not talking about an elephant, we're not talking about a lion, we're talking about a fox, a 10-pound fox, if a 10-pound fox gets on this wall that they're building, it's done. You see the humor in it? Look at scene two, verses seven through eight. Now when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. On the surface, this does not look like anything is intensified, but it is. Jimmy, will you show that map? So if you were with me in Nehemiah 2, I talked to you about uh, Sanballat, who was a, uh, from Samaria, talked to you about Tobiah, who was an Ammonite, and Ammon is right here, Samaria is right here. We talk, I talked to you about a guy by the name of Geshem, who was an Arab, and so all of this down here is Arab territory. These three, one, two, three, these three men were the only men mentioned in Nehemiah chapter 2. Now, notice Nehemiah chapter, look, look at verse 7. When Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, and the Ammonites, and the Ashdodites. What? So now there's another group? Ashdod is right here. The country to their west. You, you get the image now? The more progress they're making, now it's just not these three. Now it's full court press. Every country around you is in on this. You see the intensity? It, it, they're doing more work. They're progressing. And the enemy, that now all of a sudden we have another person on our side plus an army with us. All right, thank you, Jimmy. That's scene two. You get another person or another group of people in on this. And then look at scene three, verse 11. And our enemy said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. You see, you hear that? That's not just making fun of you. And that's just not laughing. That's not just saying if a fox goes up on your wall, it crashes. That's just not bringing in another country. This is all out war. This moves from cold war to hot war, where we want to take your life. We want to sneak in and kill you and stop the work. Do you see what's happening? As they work more and progress in the work of the Lord more, opposition is being turned up more against them. Why are they so angry? Like, I'm just like, dude, why do you want to kill me over a wall? Like, that just, that seems so unbridled. It seems so sort of out in left field, unless you realize that they are caught in the middle of this cosmic war that's really bigger than them. And here's what I mean. Jimmy, you got the, 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 the um, it may not show up. It may, if it does, then great. All right, so all right, I, I, I promise you, I'm going to show you this right here. I'm gonna, so here's what you can do. If you go to Matthew chapter 1, now, go ahead and turn there. I mean, I think it might be helpful just to sort of see how the scriptures are really connected. I, I've loved uh, just kind of studying uh, and sort of seeing some of this stuff. So go over to Matthew chapter 2. And so what Matthew does, in Ma I mean, Matthew chapter 1, what Matthew does in Matthew chapter 1 is be before he does anything about, about 
Jesus in terms of his active ministry, how he was born, the first thing Matthew does is try to tell you where Jesus came from. In other words, he starts his gospel by telling you that this Jesus has a lineage. He has this pedigree. He has this line of people that he's coming from, that he is really is integrally connected to Abraham, to David. And so here's what you see. Matthew divides his genealogy into three parts. And so he, he does it sort of before David, then he does during David, then he does it after the deportation when they come back. And so go down to Matthew chapter 1, verse 12. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel was the father of Zerubbabel. Now, Zerubbabel, you ought to know that name because this is the same Zerubbabel who was in Ezra, who sort of led in the building of the first altar. That Zerubbabel, he was the father of Abiyad, and Abiyad was the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim was the father of Azor. And so what you do is what they're doing is they're tracing that genealogy all the way back from those exiles who came back from being deported, who came back to Jerusalem. They're tracing the lineage. And you, you notice that word right there, this guy by the name of Eliakim? Right there, he was the, in, in verse 13. Now, here's the thing. That same Eliakim is going to come up a little later in Nehemiah. Same guy. And so when you look at this family tree, you look at Jesus, Eliakim is right here. Zerubbabel is, I know you can't, is that Zerubbabel right there? Zerubbabel, I can't see it, but that's Zerubbabel right there. Go down to, you're at Eliakim. And you know what? You're in the home stretch, right? <laughs> this is the home stretch right here. That's the home stretch. I mean, my Messiah is about to be born, which means what? I mean, what does this mean? This means that right there in that city, there is the DNA. I mean, there is something about Jesus right there. This woman is carrying a child or has a little son or daughter kind of running through here who will participate in the coming of the Messiah through their lineage. All right, thank you, Jimmy. Now you see why they're so insistent on destroying the Jews? It's not about the wall and it's not about the city. I wanna wipe you off the face of the earth so that there is no Messiah. And these people are caught in the middle of this crossfire. Like, dude, why are you so angry at us? And I don't even think Sanballat knows. I don't even think the people really know, but it doesn't matter if they know. That is their reality. Satan hates them. Satan hates God. And Satan hates anything of God. So you want to do God's work, build God's city. That's all right. I want to kill you and take you out. That's how hostile he is. That's why they are this angry. Opposition will get intense. We are united to Christ. And there is a real enemy who is a roaring lion who seeks whom he may devour. And by our union with Jesus, we are caught up into a war that's cosmic. And this means opposition. As we progress in the Lord's work, whatever it is, you can expect hostility. 
and resistance. You can expect it. The third thing I think we see is we will get discouraged. I mean, I wish I could tell you that as we hear about this enemy, that as we live life under the gaze of Christ, that as we pursue holiness and obeying the Lord, I wish I could tell you that you will not be discouraged and you will not be afraid and you will not find yourself in situations that are painful and, and that hurt you. I wish I could tell you that, but I would not be preaching this Bible if I did. Now, what do you do when someone says, I want to take your life? What do you do when you know that this is how they feel about you? I've had it happen. I've had someone threaten me to take my life. My last year in high school. And it was, he was serious. And there was just this gaze over me. I couldn't play basketball. I couldn't go to football games. I could do nothing. Because it wasn't about a fight. He was like on a whole nother plane. He's in prison right now. But it's the truth. You get discouraged when you hear this kind of talk. And that's what you see in this text. Look at what happens when, after all of this is going on, look at what happens in verse 10. In Judah, it was being said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. Now think about, you, you hear what's happening? Their opposition is actually working on them. And everything Sanballat said is now what they're doubting. So he, he was the one, I mean, he said with himself, he called them feeble. And now look at what they say. The strength of those who bear the burdens is falling. He was the one who says, will they revive the stones out of rubbish? And now look at what they're saying. There is too much rubble. He was the one who said, will they be able to do this themselves? And look at, look at what it says. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild. Do you see what's happening? This is very intentional. Sanballat is saying this, and now the people hearing this, they're actually believing what they do not see. Because by their hands, they've built the work. They've heard Nehemiah say, be encouraged, the Lord is with you. They've done this, but all of a sudden, the words from these accusers is causing them to disbelieve what's right in front of their eyes. Discouragement. That's what's happening. And this is the work of the enemy. Do you know that with words, with words, Satan tricked Adam and Eve with words. Did God really say that? Do you really believe that? With words. He speaks only twice, but it is enough to offset the balance of trust and obedience between the man and the woman and their creator. 
Satan began by calling God's goodness into question, and that has been his primary strategy ever since. His aim is to subvert trust by influencing us to believe the promise of sin is more satisfying than the promise of God. That's from John Piper in his book, Future Grace. It was words that threatened the work. The older I get, the more I'm appreciative of the Bible. I mean, I think you kind of learn that just because we're Christians, we're not invincible. That just because we are saved and justified and are being sanctified, it doesn't mean that we don't hurt and that we don't get afraid. I love the fact that this Bible is open and candid enough to actually show us that even though God is with them, God is blessing them, God is in this, that there is still a space in which God's people are falling back and they're discouraged. That I, I, I deal with this in my own life. And I know some of you do too. That as you pursue the Lord, you sure you want to follow him? You sure you want to give? You sure you believe that? And sometimes you and I, we don't even need an outside person to do it. Sometimes it's our own sinful hearts that put us on the stand and they interrogate us. How I wish that this were not a reality, but it is. Whether from the outside of sinful opponents or from the inside, from the indwelling sin that still resides in us all, we are all prone to not only intense opposition, beginning from mere words, but we're actually prone to start believing the lies of the evil one. Displeasure, not displeasure, Discouragement is in this path. The last thing is we must fight. What do you do with an enemy this vicious? We fight with one hand and Nehemiah says we work with the other. I love, I mean, think about that image. What do you do? Do you, are, are we just punching bags, right? Are we just here to take on the doubts and do nothing, to take it, take it, take it? Nehemiah says, no, you can fight the evil one. He has been defeated in Jesus, and now you and I can fight and we can stand. And that's what he says. Look at what's happening. You fight with one hand and you work with the other. He does this on a corporate level. Look at verse 16 and verse 21. Half of my servants worked on construction. The other half held spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. You know what? I didn't know what a coat of mail was. Did y'all? I did not know what that was, so I kind of had to look it up. But it's like this, this shawl, I guess you might want to call it. But it's, it's metal, and it kind of it, it overlaps, and it protects you from... Um, and a sword or an arrow coming at you. So when Nehemiah says that with the coat of males, it's just this piece of armor that you would wear if you were going into battle to keep you from being stabbed, right? Half of them worked while the other half had spears, shields, and bows. Look at verse 21. So we labored at the work and half of them had spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. 
Look at verse 17 and 18. Those who carried the burden were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. Do you see the imagery, right? That we have a work to do, a work to progress in. But here's what Nehemiah is saying. We're going to have to work and obey and pursue the Lord while also knowing that we're going to have to fight. And we're going to have to fight against the evil one. And we're going to have to do both. We have to work and we're going to have to fight that that is going to be the posture of a Christian. We can fight back. Now, how long would they need to embrace this posture? Look at what it says in verse 21. From the break of dawn, the stars came out. Look at verse 23. Neither I nor my servants nor my men, none of us took off our war attire. Each kept his weapon in his right hand. I mean, think about it. Always ready. I mean, that's kind of the motto. They went to sleep in their attire. They would not take the war cloths off because they understand the war will always exist until Jesus comes back. And so that posture for them as they worked and pursued the Lord, one hand working, one hand warring. Now. What do we do? with these spears and shields and bows and swords. Because I think if we, the the wrong way to apply this is to say, Christian, you need to go and get you a gun. I'm not not against you, us owning guns, right? So I'm I'm not talking about private sort of uh, self-defense. I'm talking about doing the work of the Lord with a shield and with a sword and with a spear to kill anybody who opposes the work of the Lord. You know, is that how we're going to do this? And the answer is no. The answer is no, because this, it is the same Jesus who told Peter, who cut off Malchus's ear, you live by the sword, you die by the sword. Put the sword down and Jesus puts his ear back together, right? It is the same Jesus who tells his disciples, pray for those who persecute you. Somebody slaps you on one cheek, give them another. I mean, Jesus is all about this sort of movement towards, I mean, on the cross, he said nothing. And so what do we do with it? I think we have to understand that within this framework that they had the right to bear arms with a sword because they were protecting the coming of Jesus. You're going to try to take my son or take these persons that I put in his lineage that are instrumental in his arrival. We're going to go eye for eye, tooth for tooth and nail to nail. But Christ has come. There is no need to protect Jesus. He protects himself. There is no need for us to carry weapons in the name of the church to protect what? Like what? He's come. He's done it. He's fulfilled it. And so in a sense, these weapons that we see right here, do we have the God-given right to bear these arms to go out and conquer the world with weapons of force? Paul says, no, we do not wage war against flesh and blood. He says, in Jesus, through the cross, we now have new weapons. But some of these new weapons are really old weapons. 
And you see it in the text. This passage is not just about the spears and the shields and the swords, sword, as if that's the only weapons. There are other weapons that they're using to do battle. And the first one is prayer. Nehemiah burst out in prayer when they taunt him. Do not cover their guilt. Let not their sin be blotted out from your sight. He is praying right there, and they progress in the work. That when they're taunting them again, look at verse 9, and we pray to our guard, and we set a guard as protection against them day and night, but we prayed. And look at verse 11, and God frustrated their plan. Look at verse 12, when they were failing and, and were in disbelief, look at what it says. Ten times, you who live near us, you must come to us. Ten times, you must return another weapon in the hand of God's people. It's prayer because God answers and he hears. Nehemiah prayed and God frustrated their work. He did that. But look at the next thing. Look at verse 12. It's the people that our strength is getting weak. And we cannot fight against them unless you come down from the countrysides and come here and do battle with us. That sounds a lot like bear another, each other's burdens. Do not forsake the assembling of the saints. You hear what, what, what I think Nehemiah is getting at? That the, another weapon for God's people as we are being opposed by the enemy it's other Christians around us standing with us in our hard times. That is a gift from Jesus to you, just like the gift of prayer has been bought by his blood, where we have access to the Father through him. He is also saying you have access to other people outside of yourself. Leadership, you see it in verse 13. So I... In the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, I station people by their clans with their swords. Leadership. Look at verse 14. And I arose and told them all, do not be afraid of